Welcome to Help from Future Self. What's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's a conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen. Some folks call me Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my constant Keyforge companion. It's my coach. What's happening? Boulevard Paper Fight. How's it going, Blake? Hey, man. How's it going? Uh, pretty excited for this episode. It's... uh. Seems like we're we're on a theme here moving forward, which I'm I'm super stoked about. I a hundred percent agree with you. We've been resurrecting old segments from the show and applying them to a brand new set, which you know what that means, folks. We're going to be doing one of our classic over unders, which is something we haven't done in a long time. I don't think oh, since yeah. Worlds Collide came out, and we're going to be applying it directly to Mass Mutation. Uh, basically, we've categorized a bunch of different styles of card, and we've each picked a card. Uh, that falls into that category, and we're going to tell you whether or not we think this card is going to overperform in that category or underperform in that category. And we have to give justifications, so it's just a little jumping-off point for more conversation about mass mutation as we are on the absolute precipice of the release of that set. Unfortunately, our excitement on that is a little bit dampened because, uh, well, to be totally frank, we don't know when we're going to be able to get mass mutation product here in Vancouver. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Basically, as Modi switched their distributors, and as a result, they got a ton of different gaming products in a warehouse that are having to be sorted and then shipped accordingly. So apparently, the orders are going to be a little bit in disarray for the next uh, couple of weeks, which is really sad considering uh, everyone has already been waiting for so many different products from FFG for so long. And they're going to have to unfortunately wait a little bit longer, which is uh, quite a shame. I think that the the blow of the significant delays to mass mutation due to, well, obviously the outbreak of COVID, you know, it was softened somewhat when new dates were established and everybody was like, all right, fine. Then in July, hopefully we'll be at a place where, you know, we'll have things figured out and we'll have lots of time to really get to that, that, that place mentally where maybe we're ready to play again and try something new. And then to just have this delay sort of dropped in our laps, I think is, is, is it's a bit of a downer. I'm really hoping that the uh, company that is in charge of Canadian distribution gets their act together so that we can buy product from them. I mean, that's ultimately what it boils down to. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's if we have to wait a little bit longer, well, we've waited this long. Fair. Yeah. The, the great thing is, is uh, we're starting to see some remnants of in-store IRL play being able to be taken advantage of in a couple stores. So the fact that even that is something that's on the table uh, no pun intended, is uh, is quite nice in the in the near future. So uh, we're just waiting for that product to get here, and then we're going to be able to jam some games and have some fun. So stay tuned for more updates on that once we get to report on our new IRL gameplay. A quick note on that topic. Um, we probably aren't going to be talking too much about Mass Mutation on next week's episode, but it is going to be something extremely cool and special. I'm just putting that out there right now. Indeed, indeed. With that said, why don't we get the ball rolling here? So we came up with a bunch of different categories that sort of uh, uh, different cards fall into. This is by no means a complete uh, or exhaustive list of categories. Some things uh, we left out because, um, frankly, there isn't a whole lot of cards that speak to them in Mass Mutation as a set. Uh, So, for example, key cheats are not represented amongst the categories we're talking about. But we're going pretty broad. So what we've got are deck manipulation, amber control, board control, spot removal, 
and artifact control. All things that I specifically look for when I open up a deck and I'm starting to assess the strength of a deck. And so as we start to learn the set, I think it's really important for us to think about cards in the context of what they provide across those categories, and then ultimately whether or not they will do a good or bad job. So why don't we get things started right from the top with deck manipulation. What card did you pick, and do you think it's going to be an over or an under in terms of performance for you, uh, Blake? So I chose a Logos creature. It's called the Archivist, and it's a three-power creature. And it says, if you archive the Archivist, archive it face up. While the Archivist is in your archives, instead of picking up all of your archives, you may choose to pick up any number of cards in your archives. And it's a rare. So for me, I unfortunately think this card is going to be an under. And that's not to say I don't love this card and I think it's super exciting. I just think that unfortunately it requires a bunch of pieces to the puzzle. There will be decks that this card is going to be just absolutely busted and do the most amazing things. And you're going to essentially have a second hand through your archives and be very, you can just archive as much as you want. There is definitely a few cards in this set that really lay um, credence to this. But unfortunately, I think the fact that you're going to need multiple pieces and for them to come together at the same time is going to create that this card is unfortunately just a three-prior creature a lot of the times. And that's going to feel real bad with such a strong ability. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, I think when looking at this card, it looks incredible until you consider the fact that it has no built-in mechanism to get it into your archive. You need some way to get it in there, and if you get that card, at, you know, after this guy's already hit the board or you know something else like that, it's going to be a dead draw so much of the time. Just a three-power creature, like you said, and that's a bummer. The one thing I wonder is, is I, I bet through you know play testing and iterations, I bet you there was a point when this had things on it that did that. Like, I'm sure maybe at one point it had like a reap or an action ability archive the archivist or maybe a destroyed and then i bet you through playtesting they realize that that's just too busted for it that easily to go in there and you have that resource of an archive essentially being a stored hand that you can call on at any time and it end up going down to like you have to get a second piece of the puzzle because you, you can see why it's not something that you can just trigger so easily because it would be extremely mm. broken especially with the amount of archiving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things to keep in mind is if this guy ever does get into your archive, the chances of him leaving it are so minimal. I mean, what are the cards that get rid of cards from archives? Desanya, the that untamed tree creature... Yeah, there's there's a there's a I think there's a couple in this set, but it's it's definitely you're you're on the the lower end of of things that can go against it and really uh, affect it once it's there. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I gotta agree with you 100% on this one. I just, I, I feel like, as is always the case, there will be a deck that will make a card, no matter what it is, really awesome. I think those are going to be very few and far between when it comes to the Archivist. There's going to be mm -hmm. a lot of decks where this appears where it's just kind of average. Yeah, I agree. So which one do you have, Alex? For deck manipulation, I'm going with something a little unusual. It is a disaction called Grim Reminder. Playability, choose a house, archive each creature of that house from your discard pile, gain one chain. So here is why I'm interested in this. We have seen so many different ways that um, you can remove creatures from your uh, discard pile, but it's almost always back to your hand or back to your deck. 
So we're thinking about things like, say, um, not finished with you that that lets you shuffle a bunch of cards back into your from your discard pile back into your deck. Or we're thinking about things like Arise from Call of the Archons that allowed you to bring cards back into your hand. I think the interesting thing about Grim Reminder is that by completely removing them from both your draw pile and from your discard pile and just having them off to the side in your archive for whenever you feel like drawing them, you are reducing the size of your deck. And I think that has myriad, myriad applications. Of course, if you draw Grim Reminder early, it's not going to be much use to you. And in fact, it might be a discard if you don't want to feel like gaining that chain just for playing it to maybe get one creature archived. But I think there's going to be a lot of scenarios where especially after you've played a bunch of turns and your deck is getting low and your discard pile is getting high, that removing all of your cards from your discard, uh, all of the creatures of a certain house from your discard pile, putting them so that you can have a monster turn at some indeterminate point in the future. And as we just discussed, hard to get people to discard cards from their archive unless you have the specific cards that allow you to do that. You're creating just a much thinner deck. So if you're getting close to the point where you're going to cycle, I think it's going to raise the chances of you bringing back some of your absolute biggest bombs that you may have already played. I just like it, and I think it's going to overperform. Um, I think that on paper, it just looks like an interesting way to bring creatures back from the dead, but I think it's actually going to have a lot of applications when it comes to manipulating the size of your deck, and uh, that that's uh, certainly something that I think we've seen be very advantageous, I guess would be a way to put it, uh, when it comes to playing the game of Keyforge. Any thoughts on that, B? Oh, man, like, we did not plan this out at all, by the way. Like, we, we just let each other know what cards we chose so we wouldn't overlap, but I gotta say, this card with the archivist would be mm. insane like if you get a deck with those you literally just discard your archivist and don't worry about it and then next turn you play grim reminder and choose your logos cards and you're just set up after that like mm -hmm. it's you could very early like that'd be a sweet combo in terms of um getting to do it because plus you could do all your other logos cards as well so um i really like this card and i agree with you i think more often than not it's going to be a over performer and i think you just get it in your opening hand and you just mull it out I think it's a, it's a reason to mulligan your hand, provided there's not other things that are particularly saucy. Because it's, I don't see a time when this isn't going to be helpful. Like you know what this is? This is a rise, mm. the new version of a rise. And I mean, it's not quite as good as a rise. Actually, I would say I would argue it's almost better than a rise. I think it's better than a rise, hands down. Uh, because you're going to have the ability to not like before with a rise, you always wanted to choose dis as a was a big as a big lean to because you could then play it out right away. The only difference is you can't play it out right away, but that also gives you the ability to choose the house you actually wanted to call next and have an even more impactful term uh, turn, which is I think very potent. And I think also just the, the capacity to say, all right, so um, let's say that I've had all of my Star Alliance creatures all out of the, you know, they're all in my discard pile. I put them all into my archive and then I, you know, can still keep playing using cycling my deck until the right moment to just drop a huge board of dinos, of star alliance, of logos creatures, whatever. Like, I, I really feel that's hugely advantageous. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd be interesting to see how much mutant stuff factors into that as well. Yeah. Or indeed. mutant hating stuff for that matter. Yeah, it's true. Uh, let's move on. Our next category that we decided on was Amber Control. What have you got for Amber Control? So for Amber Control, I chose a Star Alliance creature, and it's Ant1-1-O-N-Y. So let's just call it Antony. And uh, <laughs> this uh, six-powered robot has a playability of capture all of your opponent's Ember. At the end of your turn, move one Ember from... Antony to your opponent's pool. Whew. Spicy. Like, 
I mean, if you look at what Drumble does, and it's a two-power creature and it's a pain in the ass to deal with, imagine what you're doing when you have a six-power creature. Absolutely agreed. And I, and I like it as well because of just the fact that not only do you have all your opponent's Ember, but there are things that exist. Like, there's Exile still exists in this set. There's other cards that are going to pair really well with this that that can hurt people for having their Ember. I mean, there's. I feel like Sorian with Antony is going to be where you get the real uh, crazy combinations. Because you have um, the one that says move half the Ember mm-hmm. on a creature which is going to be your opponent's, which is nuts. If you happen to have a Senator Baracus, you literally just got your opponent's Ember to forge a key. Not to mention there's Perfectus Ludo still in the game, so if you can destroy him yourself, you literally take away all of your opponent's Ember. You capture it, and it's gone. Mm -hmm. They maybe get one back at most. So I think there's just... That card is going to overperform. I mean, there's there's very rarely a time when capturing all of your opponent's Ember isn't an amazing effect to have, especially in the late game when you're going for key three. I was just about to say that. I mean, we've seen cards like Crassosaurus uh, and Drumble that do a similar thing. And oftentimes we look at those and go, oh, they're so situational. But the thing is, there are situations where they're just game mm-hmm. winners. Um, and especially too with Antony, where where you're going to be looking at scenarios where he's going to buy you like at least a turn when you drop him because your opponent will have to do something to deal with him. And if they don't have the answer, then basically it could be the difference between winning or losing a game, even if you still need a couple of turns to get to the point where you have enough Amber to forge that third key. That six power is, is I think, what really pushes <sighs> it over the edge because it's, it's hard to deal with. You can get it on a taunt as well. That means... You're almost having to run like three creatures or maybe even four to to get to Antony. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, you know, warding is still very mm-hmm. much a thing in the game right now. Yeah, it's true. I went for something that I think is going to be an underperformer. Um, it is a Saurian action. It's called Spoils of Battle. Get one Amber for playing it. Play effect. A friendly creature captures one. Each creature with Amber on it captures one from its opponent. So... On its surface, you're getting an Amber for playing it, which is cool, and you're capturing two of your opponent's Amber. So, you know, a Terms of Redress kind of scenario right there. Doesn't seem too bad. Um, I think the big thing that has me thinking underperform in this one is we have seen so many times in the past cards like Pandemonium where everybody starts capturing Amber, and I find so frequently when it's these two-sided, you know, sort of effects that it becomes very tricky to know when to play these. And because exalting is such a huge thing in this set, like there's exalting happening all over the place across all of the different uh, sets, um, or sorry, across all of the different houses, you're just going to have these game states where every time you play Spoils of Battle, you know, both you and your opponent are going to be capturing a ton of amber from across the other side. And it's just, I there's nothing I hate more than playing a card where my opponent ends up getting a bunch of my amber over onto their creatures. I just can't stand it. It's one of those things that I find, you know, there will be scenarios in which this will be purely advantageous for you. I just think they're not going to be as frequent as perhaps uh, would make this an overperformer. So I'm going under on Spoils of Battle. Interesting. I think you're right. I think that more often than not, it may it may underperform. But I mean, I've used Pandemonium to great success because at the end of the day, Amber Control is Amber Control. And in a game where we don't get to choose the cards that are in our deck, having anything that can actually take someone off a key and delay you is sometimes a really powerful thing. And I think if you have things like, um, for example, just off the top of my head, a 
Perfectus Ludo again. I, we mentioned this before. That card is still a great card for having something like this. You're going to mm-hmm. have all your creatures protected from anything happening. Um, you could even have, like, if you happen to have this, like, this is going to combo, I think, very well. Like, there's a lot of things this will combo mm-hmm. with that are going to create interesting opportunities. Um, again, like, this this is it's such a rare card, but Senator Baracus, that card is just going to do a lot of, like, when you get a deck with Baracus in this set, I think it's it's extremely more potent than having it in Worlds Collide. And it was really, really really good in worlds collide there's just so many things putting ember on different ways on your creatures here that i think we're going to see this uh card really over like senator brackus is an over over in this set i think if we're just gonna yeah. off the cuff just bring <laughs> throw that in there but i mean i think this card is i think this card is the true definition of an over under it's an over and it's an under context always important Deck always important. I'm very curious to see how this one pans out, I gotta say. The great thing is is that it's not saying Exalt at all, right? That's the thing that I like about it, is it's just straight embers growing your creatures, and that could be beneficial. So that's that's the one thing, is that it is creating a moment where you can do some cool things. I mean, Axiom Gris of Grisk still exists, so you are protecting your whole battle line with having that. If you follow that up with an Axiom of Gris, that's going to be really potent for you. So there are things. I, I think that this is going to be an interesting card. This is this is one of the cards that I'm most excited to see in the wild and get used a bunch and see what happens. All right. Board control. This is a really fun category because it can apply to so many different things. What card did you pick, Blake? So I chose a creature from my board control. And it's a one-power creature from Dis called Skixuno. And it's a demon that has the Omega trait. And it has the playability of destroy each other creature. And for each creature destroyed this way, give Skixuno a plus one power counter. So it's kind of like an unlocked gateway that leaves you with one really beast creature potentially. It's super wild. (laughs) It's a wild card, you know what I mean? And I feel that for board control, it's hard not to say that it's going to be an over. Like anything that's going to do a board wipe... And the only condition is is that you're like you get one creature and you have to play it to end your turn. That's your only condition. I don't know how much of a of a drawback that is, especially if you have dis in your lineup. Like just seeing all these dis creatures in front of me, it's like every third creature feels like it has a destroyed trigger. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So no. I think you're gonna get some some wild things. I think this card's gonna really overperform for me. Yeah, I mean, Omega, I think, is a is an interesting trait that they haven't ever really explored to its fullest extent. Like when it no. was first – when Alpha and Omega were first brought around as concepts in Age of Ascension, they were used in kind of like – in some cases on cards that I don't even think made sense. Like there's a bunch of Alpha cards where you're just like, why is this even an Alpha? Mm-hmm. Like you've made this mm-hmm. card essentially useless by doing that. Um, I'm looking at you, Bumblebird. Yeah. But uh, this this – it really does make sense just because the advantage of playing it is so huge. And as you pointed out, the destroyed triggers on so many of the disc creatures are going to make this going to be like just a, a, a nightmare to deal with in so many decks big over performer mm-hmm. in my estimation yeah what about yourself alex what did you choose i went with mind over matter in house logos it's a rare 
play effect, put each creature into its owner's archives, doesn't get any more simple than that. I think it's going to be a big overperformer um, because archiving, uh, you know, I mean, once again, this is a card that's going to pair so incredibly well with the archivist. I, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, just being able to put every card into uh, a po- into archives, it's not the same as destroying them, but what you are doing is forcing people to then have to draw their whole archive, which messes up their hand. So there's going to be lots of really clever ways that you can play this to really mess up your opponent's draw. And that's one of the things that I think is super interesting about it as a board control card. It takes everything off the board, basically resets you, you know, leaving aside the issue of uh, uh, wards. Um, It gets around uh, destroy triggers. So if you're worried about your opponent having a ton of destroy triggers and not uh, wanting to set them off while still getting their stuff off the board, this is going to take care of that. You'll see the cards again at some point. But ultimately, if people want to get all that stuff back, it means they're going to have to draw a whole bunch of stuff into their archive, which is going to mess up their card draw. I just think this one's going to be real disruptive and act as both a board clear as well as a way of messing up your opponent's game plan and their ability to dig for stuff within their deck. So I think a big overperformer. Yeah, this one, I I like this one too. I think this is going to be one of the more high-skilled cards within the set. And the reason being is because you're going to have to be juggling with a lot of factors when you play it. Uh, One is if you seem to have maybe only like a a house out and you play this, it's going to be extremely advantageous, especially if your opponent has uh, a little bit of every house there. So that means they're they're going to basically have to call three different houses over time in order to utilize everything in their archive. Once they put it into their hand, like you said, is really going to slow down that cycling. And then on top of that, you're going to have to be juggling the playabilities. Because if they have a bunch of creatures out with playabilities, you may actually end up discarding this card because you're going to give them a double dose of that really great potent play uh, effects that may be coming in each time they play those cards over again. So you're going to have that caveat always on the board. But like I said, it's going to be high skill and high reward, I think, if you play it correctly. Uh, I almost feel like this could be a really good early game card uh, unless there is a huge, you know, I think against anything that exalts where there's going to be Ember, this is going to be really powerful against your opponent in that scenario. But I think you're going to want to be playing this early to set yourself up. Like if you can see your opponent is calling um, a couple houses, you may you may notice like, you know what, I'm going to set them back and I'm going to still establish my my presence because you're also going to have the ability to play out after you've done this. Mm. So you could have gone like your other two houses and now you're calling logos for the first time. You lead with this and you put yours back. Maybe it's only one house even, but you're going to then play a whole suite of cards and hopefully your opponent has played three houses up until this point. So you're going to actually cause that that having to call something three times before you get your whole hand cleared out, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm with I'm with over, but I think if you're not careful, this could be an underperformer. I I think some people are going to get burned by this card in all honesty because there is a I think a skill level to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an excellent way to put it. A skill testing card where people who understand it and understand how to play it and understand how it interacts with their deck and also ways in which you can use it to really bone your opponent will get the maximum value out of it. Next category is spot removal, one of my absolute favorite things to think about in Keyforge because it is so critically important to be able to do because there are so many creatures that are such a huge pain for you if you do not deal with them. What did you choose as a spot removal card? Hard, Blake. Well, this card that I chose is a creature that does spot removal, and uh, the art on this card is honestly tops for me. And the card is 
Dreadbone Decimus. It's a five-power Saurian creature. It's a dinosaur assassin as its traits, and it has the play-fight ability. You may exalt Dreadbone Decimus if you do destroy a creature with lower power than Dreadbone Decimus. Whew! I mean, getting an instant effect plus a recurring fight effect is always an amazing thing, and I think there's way more uh, instances of being able to pump your creatures in this set, which means you can get that five higher and pretty much take out most things on the board. Now, when I said I love the art, it has this reminence for me of some like Bucky O'Hare type <laughs> artwork, and like that was my jam as a kid. So um, I'm I'm loving it for that. Like the art just looks a little bit different than the rest of the Saurians in a way. Like it's got this more space age vibe in a way, which I'm loving with it. So yeah, I think this card is going to be a real over for me. Yeah, I love this card. Um, I really enjoy that it has a play effect that is specifically targets a certain segment of creatures. Also, mm-hmm. there's going to be ways that you can pump up Dreadbone Decimus so that it becomes even more impactful. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like the Exalt is like a, a, an easy price to pay. Like we mm-hmm. talked a long time ago about Whisper and the idea of yeah. is it worth your opponent getting an Amber for you get to take out any creature any target creature you lose an ember but yeah or sorry lose an ember and oftentimes the answer is yes like in this case it might not even be the case that your opponent ever gets the amber off dreadbone mm-hmm. decimus yeah it's true i mean of course naturally you're going to want to be careful about how many times you use this power since you don't want him sitting on six amber worth of uh, murders but yeah an excellent card and i think an overperformer. i'm going with an under on my next one it is spot removal from house sanctum you get an amber for playing this card, Fangs of Gizzleheart. It's playability, purge the most powerful creature. Honestly, like when it's the most purge the most powerful creature, that's both your creature or your opponent's creature. And there's going to be so many times when this is a dead draw. Just because you're going to have like the most powerful creature and then barring your opponent getting rid of you having the most powerful creature, what are you supposed to do with this? Mm. You know, maybe you can archive it somehow. Maybe you just have to straight up discard it if you don't want clogging up your hand. But there's a lot of big creatures in Sanctum. So right off the bat, you might be looking at a lot of scenarios in which you've already established a board. You draw into this and it's like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? The Sanctum Saurian decks are going to hate this card um, just because I think it's going to make things incredibly difficult uh, for it to be played effectively. Obviously, there's going to be tons of scenarios where this is going to like do incredible work. If your opponent gets one of those big, massive two uh two card cards out on the table fangs of gizelhard is going to be you know a perfect solution to that but i think there's just going to be so many scenarios in which this is a dead draw so i just you know i I gotta say under for it even though there's definitely going to be times when it's going to put in work yeah i'm with you i think it's it's an under and i think this card like almost purely exists as an insurance policy against those those big uh gigantic monsters that exist in in the game that's that's my thoughts this was created specifically for that and it's just an insurance policy so a lot of the time you may never want to play it yeah and the other thing is it's at common which means that you're going to get decks that have like three of these and in some decks that's going to be a nightmare to deal with honestly i feel like this card is going to be an early game like you want an early game and that's it so you can play it when you have almost no creatures or it's like you played a two power and then played a three and you get to purge it you know what i mean so mm. i think it's going to come in a in this will be definitely i think more welcome early and especially if you have it you can kind of be more careful around it i think but as the game progresses it's gonna i think lose its ability to potentially uh be effective and be more of a liability 
100% agreed. Last category that we decided on is the ever-important artifact control. I'm a big Quixel Stone guy, so you know I am going to be looking for my opponent's artifact control whenever I'm looking over their deck list. What did you pick, Blake? I chose uh, Action in Shadows that is called Boro, and it says Play Take control of an enemy artifact while under your control it belongs to House Shadows instead of its original house. And you get a Pippa Ember for doing this as well. <laughs> oh yeah, geez. I mean, there's it a, probably there's, needed that, hey? Yeah, exactly. I think there's going to definitely be some artifacts that exist that are just kind of like, you know, symmetrical passive abilities that this is not going to be super helpful for. But there is a ton of artifacts in this set that regardless of its passive and or not, and it's not symmetrical, that it's just going to be amazing to have this card. Like this may be at the top of my list because having your thing destroyed is one thing, but having it straight up taken from you and used against you, I think is way worse. Mm. So this is a, this is going to be an over for me, I think, a lot. A lot of the time, no matter what, you're getting an ember. If there's no artifacts in play, you're getting an ember. And if they're and if you see their list and they have a, a really potent artifact, you just wait, bide your time, and borrow that later. A hundred percent agreed. I think this is going to be wonderful artifact control. And you know, uh, I've been burnt so many, so many times by what's the name of the shadows creature who steals artifacts? What's that guy's name? Yes, Snecklifter. I've been burnt by Snecklifter on so many occasions that uh, literally Boro is just Snecklifter as an action. So you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hate this thing. I just know it. Uh, For my artifact control card, it's one that I've discussed before. One that I love to absolute death because. I think it does lots of interesting things. We're going to House Untamed. We're looking at a creature called the Blossom Drake. He's a dragon for power. Blossom Drake gets plus one power for each artifact in play. And while Blossom Drake is in play, each artifact's text box is considered blank except for traits. So here's what Blossom Drake does. He hits the table. He negates every single artifact so that they have no ability. And he gets plus one power for each and every single one of those artifacts on both sides of the table. Maybe that's only plus two. Maybe it's plus five, you know, depending on how many artifacts are going on in the game. But I love this guy because it's a kind of artifact control that we've never seen before. It doesn't take artifacts off the table, doesn't return them to people's decks, doesn't destroy them, doesn't borrow them. All it does is say that they're essentially useless until Blossom Drake goes away. So that has myriad applications. Just straight up old school artifact control. If your opponent's got a Quixel Stone out, this takes care of it. If your uh, opponent's got a Proclamation, anything else like that, this takes care of it. But there's lots of interesting ways that you could apply this in such a way that Blossom Drake can then be sort of like the way to delay something until such a time as you're ready for it to happen. So for example, if you are playing against a Heart of the Forest deck, you could use Blossom Drake to get up uh, to a certain place uh, by negating that effect and then remove your own Blossom Drake, either by fighting, by uh, control, by archiving, all kinds of different ways that you can get it off the table yourself and then bring that Heart of the Forest back into play when you need it. I think that there's lots of interesting ways that this is going to be applied, and I'm super keen and interested to see what those might be. So, Alex, I think this is actually going to be an under. Really? And I'll tell you why. is because you're going to get many times, based on the artifacts that exist in this set, where Mm -hmm. this card is actually, you're not going to want it, because it's going to actually negate your own artifacts. Because it works both ways. Mm -hmm. And there's some artifacts that... Like there's certain lineups of houses that I'm going to get that I'm going to be just 
so upset because this card is basically going to stop that from being a thing. Like, I'm talking about Star Alliance for one. Like, if I have Star Alliance and Blossom Drake, I'm probably pretty sad in in all honesty. Like, I don't want to see that with that. And probably Dis and Logos will be the other two. Like, those three houses, I don't want to see Blossom Drake with it. Now, with the other combinations, I may I may feel a little more inclined. But this card is, is going to go both ways for me. I think it's going to be over and under. Because if you get those saucy artifacts and you get this at the wrong time, you're going to literally have to decide, do I play this now because it's going to be a creature that does X, Y, Z? And then somehow figure a way to get rid of it before I get my artifact that I need? Or do I just not play it because I need that artifact and my game revolves around that plan? Like, I'm looking at you, Quixelstone, Transporter Platform. <laughs> so I think that this card is going to have some instances where it's way under because it's just hurting your deck from doing what it wants to do as its main game plan. I'll be interested to see. I still think there's going to be lots of scenarios where you're going to be able to use this in some real interesting ways. I agree. Delayed gratification kind of ways. I think I think you're right. Like there, it is a powerful card, but I think the, any card that can burn you, depending on your deck, I think needs to have that asterisk caveat next to it because it's you're 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 rolling the dice with some certain things. So that's the reason why I don't know about that one. Hey, legitimate, legitimate. We're gonna see when we actually get to play with these cards, hopefully soon, if we can get some product right here mm-hmm. in Vancouver, British Columbia. Can't finish an episode of Help from Future Self without the segment we call Help, Help from, future, from self. future Self. I got one for us this week, and it is a theme that we have returned to time and time again as we have doled out lessons, as we've doled out reminders, as much to ourselves as to our listeners. This is just one such lesson I was playing a bunch of games uh, over the course of the last week, and in order to try and get my mindset into mass mutation, um, I was using the print-and-play decks that have been implemented on the uh, Crucible. And I was having a really frustrating time because every time that I went to try and play one of these games, I ended up running up against just absolutely killer, stone-cold decks that were so good, so fast, so powerful, that I was barely getting a chance to actually see what these uh, new Mass Mutation decks could do. It's incredibly hard to figure out if the Mass Mutation deck that you've never played before is actually good if what you're facing up against is a three-times-control-the-weak, heavy shadows disuntamed suite from Coda, or an incredibly powerful full capture uh, key cheat uh, Saurian deck from Worlds Collide or any of the other you know I think I played against a double Ganka while I was trying to do this um, and what had occurred to me after like my third or fourth game where I was just like man I'm getting smoked out so incredibly fast that it's impossible for me to get any kind of feel for these these print and play decks was that I had to be communicating before the game started I had to put out something up in the lobby that just said hey I'm just looking for a game where I can try out these decks. So if you're playing something super powerful, I'm just going to wait for the next person to come along and see if we can set that up. I think that if I had done that earlier, I would have had a much less frustrating experience. Because as you and I both know, and as anybody who's gotten a little bit of tilt on knows, once you're in that headspace, it's so hard to get back out of that headspace without just turning the game off and walking away. And I didn't want to turn the game off. I wanted to have the experience of trying out those decks. So I think just a little bit 
of work ahead of time, even changing the title of your game to Testing Mass Mutation, No Killer Dex, or Testing Mass Mutation, 70 SAS Maximum, or something else to that effect, or Testing uh, Mass Mutation Deck, only join if you want to play another Mass Mutation deck. It would have done so much more for me than just randomly uh, like getting into games and then realizing that I was just about to get smoked out in a matter of turns. I think also you need to have the lesson of stop playing with randoms and start organizing <laughs> with your friends that you have in a plethora of. So come on, man. You keep That's another lesson you need to learn because we keep hearing you con about you playing randos and having I, just I do bad have some really good rando games sometimes, though, Blake. But that's when you're bringing your own heat. When you when you want to play with something that's more experimental, you got to you gotta look into your, your inner circle, I think, for that one. All right. I'm going to holler at Rick. Although every time I play Rick lately, you know, shouts out to the Wheeling Keyforger. He smokes me. He has got a lightning hot deck right now that he's been he's been really like putting the time in and learning. And every time I've played him with that deck, it's just been a total nightmare for me. So now I'm now I'm afraid to play Rick. <laughs> hey, I'm always here too. <laughs> Oh my goodness. You can of course find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on the Crucible on Twitter and on Instagram. Where can they find you, Blake? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's BLVD Paper Fight, as well as on YouTube under the same name. I'm actually going to have a new video up just the day before this came out, and it's a saucy transporter platform Quixelstone deck. So uh, check that one out. Man, you are speaking my language. Very, very, very cool episode coming up next week. I don't want to spoil anything about it, but just know that you are going to hear something that you have never heard from this podcast before, and maybe not on any other, but you will. Until that time, we love you. Thank you for listening. And until then, stay fortunate.